I was at the IPO party in December and I just, and I looked around the room, there were 50 of us. I'm like, yeah, everybody is probably a millionaire here or more. And the people who have made eight figures and the executives who have made nine figures. And <laughs> it was the happiest room in the world because they worked hard for <laughs> six, seven years and they had a great financial reward for it. And, uh, y'all today we talk with rish gupta about living the american dream as an entrepreneur yeah rish is one of my best friends so it was such a blast to have him on the pod we learn about how he got into entrepreneurship running his first company and selling it in india his journey to silicon valley working at samsara which ipo'd about two years ago and now building spotty eye which is a hardware tech company i also really enjoyed learning more about burning man Check it out. Go. So, but first of all, Rish, it's it's freaking it's five thirty in the morning your time. Almost. So it's almost <laughs> six now, and I know you were yeah, up at like past midnight your time. So you, I it's just yeah, I've known this about you that you barely sleep, but I'm just so glad that you're here with us today. Oh, Thank I'm you. so happy. I'm really excited. I wouldn't get up at five in the morning to talk to people. <laughs> 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 um, I was telling you and like with Machin that I was so excited for our conversation. I was like barely sleeping, but also I wonder if it had to do with because yesterday Machin and I went for the first time, we went to this cold plunge center. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, it's called like a recovery center. Yeah. And then we also did after that, it's like a compression massage type of thing. Yeah. Uh, it's called a Normatec compression and really yeah. woke my body up. And because I feel like I haven't had a chance to recover after runs and strength. Yeah. And this really did it for me. Yeah, I've done that before. <laughs> Other recovery center, but the sauna I think we go to had a big cold plunge. And so ah. we the sauna and then to a cold plunge. Right. We alternate that from like 200 degrees down to whatever the cold plunge is at. Feels really cool. <laughs> Whatever it is that. Be, yeah, barely be there for <laughs> 10 seconds. And if you dip your head in, you feel like your brain is about to freeze. How are you with cold water? Yeah, I was just going to say, the other things will <laughs> always take a cold shower. So this is feels, um, it feels... It feels good yeah, it feels, for you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, it, okay. It feels very novel. It feels like home because I've always taken a cold shower. That's funny because I also used to take cold showers as a kid because I grew yeah. up in Sierra Leone and we didn't have hot water. Yeah. And I know you, you probably did too in India. But then I, when I moved to the U.S., I got weak. I started taking these warm showers. But that said, Marcin, he is super brave. <laughs> you can take him to the top of any mountain or you can make him run as fast as possible. But this man is such a baby with cold water. Funny like how your body gets used to it. So we growing up, my heater in my house take I think fifteen to thirty seconds for it to turn on the hot water. So you turn the uh -huh. hot water on. Yeah. And the geezer would take like fifteen to thirty seconds. And I was an yeah. impatient kid. I couldn't yeah, wait for like, 30 seconds. So I, was, I just would go into the shower. And in, in the winters, Delhi is reasonably cold. Like it's in the late 30s and early 40s. For a couple oh, of wow. Months. Okay. Yeah. Then you get used to taking cold showers and then you stick to it. 
So they yeah. have the opposite problem. If I, you're like, it's too I'm hot. with a partner and I'm trying to take a shower and most people like warm showers, warm showers makes me feel like I'm going to burn. So I put my hand in one second. I'm like, oh my God, how do people do this? Like, why do people do this to themselves? <laughs> Your skin is going to burn. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's funny. And I know that you were just recently at Burning Man and I heard some interesting stories. So how was it? Oh, it's really fun. And it's, it's so many things to so many different people. But yeah. I think the simplest thing, a lot of people just mistake it as it's drugs, sex, parties, online faves, and just a lot of crazy town. And while there's a small part of it which indulges in those kind of behaviors, but the way to think about it, it's basically a city of 80,000 people made by the people coming to life for wow. these nine days. And I didn't realize it was that big, 80,000 people. Yeah. And it's like a city. You build a city in for this, and people build it themselves. It's not a central yeah. organizing committee. It's not like the fire festival or Coachella. There's no central organization trying to screw you over there. There is a burning man organization, but it's pretty much giving you the guardrails and principles, but people bring in their magic and create things. And there are people who are interested in yoga, who will create a camp, which is just about yoga. There are people who are hairstylists who will give haircuts. And there are people who are blacksmiths who will build things for you. There are people who are bike repairs people that this is bike enthusiasts they will do a bike so in, basically in this city you can find anything from sauna to haircuts to yoga workshops to <laughs> a gym to any anything you want and everything is free to use nobody cares who you are what you make what you do everybody's being very kind empathetic it's a mm -hmm. gifting economy so everything that you build or create or want to offer is free for everyone who is a member of the city so you just go around partaking in whatever your heart desires. There are people doing multi-course, throwing multi-course dinners. There are people throwing <laughs> massages. There are people throwing workshops on everything from biohacking to economic workshops to simple things. Any interest that you can think of, almost any interest you can think of. Like, how do I do nomading? How do I work 20-hour weeks? Or how do I maximize my body for running any anything you can think about there's a marathon that happens there there's a whole bunch of things yeah and it, it's pretty cool to just go in did you say there's a marathon as well yeah a marathon? Yeah. yeah how hot is it in burning the people get this year was one of the hottest years i've been in and this was in the day it would get into hundreds normally it gets into the 90s and in the day and then really cold in the night so people would start this marathon normally at five in the morning to mm. try to finish it. People run a half, people run, some people try to run a full. I've never dared to do this. Just yeah. The amount of the dust, I just feel like my lungs are going to get choked. Uh, but there are people who do it. So yeah, they just, and anything you can imagine. Uh, yeah. How do you find out about the activities? The, there is like, a, Let's like say I want to do yoga. I want to just spectate the marathon because I also don't think I could run a hundred degree yeah, marathon yeah. in the dust. And I want to go to biohacking. There's two ways. One, there is the people organize themselves into camps. And when you build a camp, you have a private space. 
and you build some kind of a public space, which is where you offer these workshops and stuff. So for example, our friends, Olivia and Ken, they did a workshop mm-hmm. on improv. So all the workshops you're doing gets printed in this central book, which has all public facing events. But, okay. but also not everybody wants to write their events in public facing events, etc. So you can always just buy Crown. And you know that anything you're seeing, <laughs> you can participate in. Like unlike a normal city where if you're biking around, you're like, oh, I don't know if I want to go into that studio, the yeah. yoga studio, because I don't know what it's going to cost. I don't know if the class is on, if they have space. It's a very welcoming thing. You can just walk in. If you see a bar, it's available. Whatever they're serving, you can have it. If you see anything, it's basically up for grabs. If you see a structure, you can climb it. It's like a kid. It's like an adult playground. Like anything that you see, you can play with, engage with, talk. That sounds so about. fun. Yeah. And I know 80,000 people is the size of Mountain View. So you guys are building a Mountain View from yeah. scratch. How, what about like space, right? So let's say I'm biking around. Is there ever a moment when there's too many people and how is that handled? Yeah. So the whole Burning Man, you create, the city is built in the shape of an arc. And you start the arc at two o'clock and go all the way to 10 o'clock. So imagine there are dials in a watch. So you start with two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. These are the big arcs going out in a dial. And then the rows are A, B, C, D, E, all the way to K. So this is, it becomes a grid-like structure shaped in an arc. Uh, and so your addresses becomes, hey, I'm at 9 and K, or I'm at 2 and E, or I'm at 5 and A, or 5.15 and A. And so all these, the quarter hours as well have small roads. So the big hours are bigger roads. The quarter hours are small roads. And so you bike around there. And then they have, you're not allowed to have really cars plying through this. And if people are transporting things or there are cars going, they can only take the bigger roads and they have to take, drive only under five or 10 miles per hour while they're driving through the city, which makes biking around. And because there's so many dials, the structure is such that you don't ever end up in a traffic jam. And then the whole desert in front of you is available at the play space. So all the art, a lot of art cards, a lot of the music happens more on the fringes and into the desert. So I see. Yeah. Really, this sounds beautiful. How yeah. long does it last? It depends on who you ask. But the real thing, <laughs> the actual experience, because people go for bill shifts to people. I met somebody last week out of the sauna earlier this week who was there for 32 days. Because he wow. was building an art piece. So he was there two and a half weeks before the actual Burning Man starts. But Saturday midnight, the gates officially open before the Labor Day weekend. So one week before the Labor Day weekend on Saturday midnight, the gates will officially open for okay. people to come in. And it will stay on till sun- the next Sunday evening is when the temple burns. So they have a man and they have a temple at the center of this whole. Okay. Know. So there's always a man that they burn. There's always a man. That Which is burn. why it's there's called always... Burning Man. Yes. Yeah, so or no. Started with, yeah. So there's a man that they burn on Saturday and the man that they burn on, the temple they burn on Sunday on the Labor Day weekend. And that marks the official end of Burning Man. So from okay, that about perspective, a week. about eight days or okay. you know, nine days, if you, the way you count it depends. But yeah. And, uh, but yeah, people will stay for the build shift much before and strike shifts, which is basically taking the city down. So people build the city and then 
the idea is to leave no trace behind, which is you, everything you brought in, you have to take out with you. Every camp structure that you built, every, if you built a sauna, break it down, take it back with you. If you built any, wow. you, yeah. So you can't even take it in its full form. You can't even take the sauna back to your backyard. You probably you need to break things down to it's to transport to build pieces. You can't even Unless bring it, a truck to drive your sauna. Away. You can. People bring trailers, so you, trailers will get parked yeah. on the fringes, and there's times you can bring it to mm-hmm. your camp using the bigger yeah. roads. Yeah. And then, and then the concept of burning down, for instance, the art pieces and not keeping them. What's behind that? So not all the art pieces have to be burnt down. I and I might be butchering some part of history here, but it started <laughs> on Baker Beach in San Francisco in the 80s by a bunch of small people and the founder was Lee something and sorry Larry why am I saying Lee Larry something so Larry and his friends started Burning Man at Baker Beach and at the end of they did it over a weekend at some point in the 80s with a bunch of very small group of friends and as a way of celebrating that amazing weekend with his friends on the beach just having a great time and doing cool stuff they made a small effigy of a man and they burnt it and they had such a great time i think they wanted to make it a ritual and the ritual kept getting bigger and they used that effigy to every year mark the end and i think somewhere in the 90s the festival was getting bigger enough and baker beach didn't have the space to accommodate everyone. You couldn't really stay multi-day. People had to go back, come mm-hmm. in. The city of San Francisco was more of a distraction than a playground at this point. Yeah. So finding a place where people really cannot escape this experience, I think finally moved to Black Rock Desert and it's been there since. And yeah, so the, the, not all the art pieces get burned, but the man definitely does. The temple, okay. which is the center of all of the city, not in the center, but where the dials meet in the desert. It's built normally over there. It's a place where people will normally write notes for their loved ones who are no longer there with us. And it's a way to celebrate there. And people have very deep responses when they go there. So Leonie, my girlfriend who you met, when yeah, she went there, like within a second, she was crying for the next half an hour because she was like, okay. I could just feel the collective pain of humanity and everything. So yeah, it's, was that her first time? This was her first time. Okay. Yeah. What do you, yeah. I'm so yeah. curious. I, I got to get her on and get the yeah. whole podcast on for yeah. her, man. Uh, but yeah. So yes, anybody, you know, who's intimidated or feels it's the mythical sex, drug, orgy thing happening. But do those things weird. happen, Rish? Do those happen? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But can you, you go and not have talk, drugs? Can, yeah. It's like a normal city. You can live in a normal city without drinking alcohol, despite the oh, okay. in the city. Nobody's forcing you to drink anything. It's not like everybody's on it and it's, oh, come on, you should. There's no peer pressure. There's okay. a lot of people who don't participate in it. Because the city generally says this, people create the rules they create, there's a lot more openness on either ends. So mm-hmm. people who want to partake in that lifestyle have space to be able to participate in that lifestyle. But that's not the dominant lifestyle and that's not what everyone is pushing you towards it sounds like an experience yeah i definitely had this impression of what you said it's a sex drug orgy 
big party and it was like not sure how i feel yeah. about it <laughs> yeah people um, come with small babies people come in their 60s and 70s <laughs> yeah what do you think it sounds amazing <laughs> <laughs> i have similar reservations to, to what jennifer said or in my head at least but i'm definitely i think now it's like i'm i want to go and it's just like i'm not motivated enough to yet make the like, stick of to make the physical effort, you know, like the plan, like schedule. It's, a little bit. it's also surprisingly not too easy to get it, right? Like you need to have a, a camp and like a band of people that you go with and you got to prepare. And there is a little bit of friction on this front, which probably makes the experience much better because every Jack and Jill can buy tickets to Coachella and go. And then here you got to put some effort into it. Yeah. I think having some of those things, the way you get tickets and where you join camp, a little shrouded and not obviously available to everyone and being out of the desert means, and once you're out there, you have to make sure you have your own water. You're thinking about how you're going to have a shower, not have a shower for nine days and whatever yeah. else. So it's a little bit of a logistical effort. And since there's no central organization, you can't blame it. It's, okay, you were told to come prepared to last yourself in nine days. And if you didn't bring something, you didn't bring something. It's not like, oh, my festival organizers didn't. Uh -huh. it's, it's 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 a little bit of a logistical i think hurdle but because yeah. of that it makes sure that people coming there are coming with very positive intent and the intent to create something and not just to take hmm. yeah and you've thought it through yeah. awesome okay lots of burning man knowledge <laughs> now <laughs> my friend and yeah. like we said more positive toward it so maybe sometime soon yeah I'd love, Rish, to transition us back to you because yeah. I think you have such a beautiful background. First of all, I want to dig into your interest in entrepreneurship, your drive, how that yeah. was shaped. One of the things that I find so sweet about you is that your mom is your hero. And yeah. I'd love to know more about why that is. Yeah. Growing up, both my parents were working and they met in college and they fell in love in there during the undergrad and my mom just kept breaking societal norms from the way she, my mom and dad come from different religions and my mom's side was very particular that she marries within her religious sect. Think of it as, yeah. And my mom's parents were pretty strict about it. And she was like, okay, I'm just going to live in with this dude until you give me a blessing. And then they're like, once you start living with them, they're like, okay, she's already. <laughs> she's already doing it. <laughs> so might as well give her the blessing. And this happened in her first job. She wanted to work in oil and gas and she wanted to work in a refinery, which means on the floor. And this was eighties and some of the men, not, I don't think there were many women, maybe yes, there, there were barely any women on the refinery floor of the, of a petrochemical factory or whatever refining facility and mm -hmm. they were like oh women can't be there because safety hazards because you wear a sari and she who said i have to wear a sari you can i, I can do i, I can do. wear what i want yeah, yeah. And, and, Dress and, like and then she really convinced them that she to get that job and she did and then over the next decade she did really well and she at some point got the award for the best women executive in the entire industry and yeah, wow. throughout her career, she just kept, they were crushing it. 
or she didn't care about the rules and she made her own rules. And as a kid, that was really inspiring to see. And yeah. Sounds like you. <laughs> has to, the apple has to fall from my close to the tree. I haven't met her yet, but I'd yeah. love to meet her soon. Okay. So then I know that you grew up with this and then how, how did your drive, sounds like yeah. your drive maybe a little bit from her and your yeah. dad, but how did your drive and entrepreneurship, love for entrepreneurship so, get formed? Yeah. When I was a little kid, the thing that I enjoyed the most was solving math problems. And partly because I was good at it and partly because, I don't know, it just seemed exciting to me. And I think it was also around this age, uh, my mom was preparing for her MBA in Europe and I think she was preparing for the GMAT or something. And so she would be sitting solving this problem. So it became an interesting thing as a kid to just do the same thing, obviously a little less complexity. And... I think I would get excited every time I would solve one of her problems, which are probably the simplest part of her problems. Uh, <laughs> but the thing that excited me was you have Pythagoras theorem or yeah. Archimedes principle or yeah. blah, blah, in mathematics. And when I read this, I'm like, wow, these guys are so cool. They were born hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, and they have a theorem or a principle about that they created that, mm -hmm. that made this discipline move forward or basically that we still learn. I was just like, wow. So basically just reading these, I was like, wow, they're doing something so bad far ago. And I still read the name in books. I said, I want to be that guy. I want to be the guy whose name, I, I want to ha have my name 500 years from now in the book where some kid is learning a mathematical theorem based on my name. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to solve, I'm going to create a theorem. So that became a life of that for two years <laughs> as a kid. So I would basically multiply large numbers, subtract large numbers, try to basically do crazy like <laughs> number stuff too. And every time I would find a pattern, okay, if you did all the nines or the ones, you'll get to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, eight. Like that's how the multiplication will come. It'll be ascending order and then descending order. I'm like, oh, this is a great pattern. There's a mathematical like rhythm to this. And I'll go to my mom excitedly. I'm like, oh, mom, I think I found something. And she's like, oh, everybody knows about this. And she'd be, she's very mad with facts. Like, burst your bubble. Uh, this kept happening for two years. But I think in that moment, what, while I realized that I'm probably not going to have a mathematical theorem, I, I the, the idea of being attracted to these personalities became uh, obsessive. And then that, by the time I was 10 years old and I started consuming world media and outward looking things, I think that changed to looking at individuals that were being celebrated in the world. And a lot of them were these amazing entrepreneurs, whether it's Richard Branson or Bill Gates and people like those that, and even historical figures, Harvard Hughes from the early 1900s in the American history, uh, and some Indian entrepreneurs. And it basically, the, and then I started reading a lot of biographies. My parents had a big book collection, luckily, and seeing this, they gave me some really good books about people, about very individualistic, more capitalist or just philosophies like Ayn Rand, Ludwig, and a couple of others, including Nietzsche, which all kind of created this drive towards wanting to do something which is like basically be able to create something and offer yeah. the world, but also you have to do something new. of your own. Yeah. Again, I so resonate just wanting to create something new, build something new and add something of value. 
And then how did you get into it? Because in your early 20s, I know you built a startup that you then sold yeah. and were so, in India. So I think the first step started to happen when I was 15 or 16 is, was I think the time, luckily our school offered a computer science, high school offered a computer science major or ability to switch some of the science subjects to learn computer science. So me and this other guy, we wrote a program on how to book. This was a time when multiplexes, so old movie halls in India used to be single screen movie halls and multiple screen movie halls were starting to become a thing. So we saw, okay. oh, they, they need a better way to book tickets to know which person. So we basically wrote a small program on how to book tickets. How you can book, if, you're, if you're multiple screens in a theater, how can you easily book tickets and know which shows are booked, which are not, and how can you allocate that weeks in advance? And it took us about a year to write this program and we were really excited. Was, and we thought it, we've done an amazing job and somebody will buy this off us. So we thought with the, we wrote with the idea that we're going to write it in such a good way that it can be bought only once we, and we didn't present it to any adult. And by the time we showed it to any adult, <laughs> up to, and this was also a computer science project for the year, for the, which we got really good grades on, but they just told us these, these companies already have programs and our program is written in a language, which is unscalable and our program is very basic for them. So that was the first kind of desire, which didn't go anywhere. But then I went to college. And in college, I got really lucky. I had two friends who shared similar interest. One of them became my co-founder in the company that I founded post-college. But him and I tried to start the first company, which almost everybody in college does, which is our was the simplest idea saying, oh, most of the college kids don't know what's happening around the college scene. So if I built a newsletter, which told people, about what's the latest happening around the <laughs> campus. And then I put ads in it and I convinced those for businesses to put ads in it. What a brilliant idea. Nobody oh. ever thought of it. <laughs> so we tried doing that. I think we got one newsletter out and barely made any money. And we got oh. too much effort or too little. And then that ended up dropping, but that led to the second one, which actually did make money, which was one of my friend's dad had a network of 500 buses. On in which basically worked in rural parts of India and okay. successful business. And we were basically sitting and they all applied in the smaller parts of India. And we were like, in the cities, advertisements are getting bigger and bigger. So we're like, oh, I think we're watching a movie or something. And this bus goes by in New York and it has a big billboard on it. And we're like, wait. Ad. Buses have ads on it. You have 500 buses. We should sell ads. And these are going to rural parts of India. We can go to Unilever's of the world. We can go to any kind of CPG company yeah. trying to sell to the. And this was the time when a lot of international companies, 2000s, were trying to access the mm -hmm. hundreds of millions of people in India. India was starting to become a place where a lot of these companies wanted to come into business and they're trying to find ways of advertising to, to the last Make mile sense. outside the big cities and just outside television. So we went to his dad and said, hey, if you sell ads and can we put ads on the buses? And he said, yes. And so we basically took measurements of the bus, decided what billboard sizes we can sell, made a presentation, first PPD, I think, properly, and then went to advertisers. And luckily this time we sold. And I think we made a couple of million rupees. Um, which was Amazing. And that, how old were you by this point? Was this? 1920. You know what I love so far about what you're telling me is all the trial and error. You 
tried one thing, you learned a ton. It turns out the computer science project, people already did that. They already had this. And then you tried the newsletter. It didn't, other people had already thought about it. And now you're trying this. It's the fail forward and keep going, which I think is really cool as opposed to just feeling like, oh no, I failed at this. I'm, I must not be very good. Yeah, the concept of failure wasn't really there in those, at that time because in my head, because you're 16, so you're not at the first time and then you're 18 and then you're 19. You were not supposed to be doing these things anyway. So you're mostly just having fun with this because your failure, at least in society's term at that point is, mm-hmm. did you get good grades and did you get into college and are you doing whatever, if you're doing sports, are you continuing to do well in that? So the failure, like this was an extra like side hustle or whatever you want to call it. So yeah. if it didn't work, it never felt like failure. It just felt like something cool I was trying to do with my friends. And we had That's fun awesome. doing it and we laughed about it. And, and and no matter what we were doing, our friends were mostly excited by the fact that we were doing something. And everybody wanted to work. That was the other thing. That you could get so much free labor from your friends because other 19-year-old kids are like, oh man, can I get involved? This seems really cool. <laughs> yeah, cool. We have no money. So we need help. They're like, yeah. You just get people to help you with small parts of the project. It was a lot of fun. And I think the concept of failure obviously became very real when I started my first company, which was like proper, like I got out of college, worked for a year at a tech startup, being a PM, I got really lucky with the company, the boss. And when I left in a year, itch to do something of my own was too strong. But this time, all my peers are earning money. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to earning no money and everybody's progressing in their career. And now if I fail, it's a failure. So the first time I think the, I looked at it as, I think it's in our minds, it's very much the construct comes from society and peers and we put ourselves against them. So at 19, there was no concept of failure because I was still doing my undergrad degree and I was fine with that. And I was still getting decent grades and stuff like that. So, and I was playing in the college soccer team. So I had success and failure were very different as a concept. And mm-hmm. I think that I remember taking my mom out for dinner and saying, Hey, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to do my own thing for the next two years. And I'm going to give myself two years because I'm in a, such a fortunate position. Like my parents were well off. I didn't have a financial pressure. I felt a lot of people who were running businesses. And this is the being fool and ignorant of the young kid. You felt. I was like, I'm smarter than them. I'm better than them. <laughs> they can do it. Why can't I? Yeah. And, and then I said, I can, with every privilege that I've had, I should be able to give myself two years to go and, and do something my heart desires rather than be this older person who looks back and says, I wish I would I have, that. I could have. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go do this. And for the next two years, and we didn't really have an idea at this point, all I knew was I'm leaving the company to start a company. If you ask me what company, I was like, I don't know. And I'm going to figure it out. With whom? I wow. said, I don't know. I want to figure that out. And then I called one of my best friends who, without was doing, trying to do the newsletter, college newsletter, start mm-hmm. up with. Him and me paired up and we started thinking through ideas. Luckily, he had just, he had finished a job and he was looking for a new job. I said, don't look for a job. Just, let's just build this something together. He said, I don't have too much cash. And I said, I had saved up something for the one year of work. I said, I'm going to put everything in. Let's go. And, and it wasn't a lot. Like I had 
probably a few thousand yeah. dollars saved up. Yeah. And so that was the startup capital. And that also made it, we looked at a few different ideas from, this was a time when Chinese trade was becoming, this was in late 2000s, trade between China and trade between China and the world, manufacturing-wise, number of goods being supplied was just on the rise at a phenomenal rate. So a lot of Indian traders were trading and building goods in China. And I'm like, yeah. oh, these guys must need Chinese lessons. So let's go to trading centers in India and build a Chinese etiquette school or a Chinese education school where all these traders who are making shit ton of money will come and learn from because that improves their trade in China to what we finally ended up doing, which was let's in turn, which is one of the things we enjoyed during college was doing all these odd gigs outside of our novel. And every, India didn't have a culture of internships. And so we were like, everybody was always interested in asking us, saying, how are you getting these things? We want to participate in this thing. Everybody. I'm like, this is what demand looks like. India is basically a young country. More people are younger than older. Majority of the country is below 20. I said, and Facebook and stuff had just happened building around colleges and stuff. So you're like, okay, let's build. Every college kid would want to get an interface with the real adult life. Nobody wants to be in this intermediate phase where teachers are telling them still to be in classrooms and just learn. They want to actually yeah. do things. And if you can give them a platform where they can connect with companies and do things, we'll have everybody on it. And yeah. if you have a vast majority of Indian youth on it, you'll make money. So that, that was the idea and that's how it kicked off and it took us a while to get it off the ground, but yeah. But you did, you got yeah, it off the you ground. You got it off the ground. Got lucky. You got, with got your, very lucky. With, with, your, uh, with your friend who you'd already had some experience with, you knew, yeah. you knew what working together was like. Yeah. And I think you sold it in two years, two years later, five, five years later. Yeah. Okay. So a few things that you mentioned that I wanted to touch yeah. on again are a this notion of failure as at that age this issue of oh like i'm comparing myself maybe to my peers or based off of what society says either it's about you should be doing this in your career or this in your personal life etc and i think that was such a fascinating tidbit that at that age you were young you were doing what you were supposed to be doing in school and so these were side hustles that were really interesting and fun yeah. and, and you, you were also enjoying them and then I love how when you did start, you you took your mom out, you gave yourself two years, you touched on how you knew that your peers would be maybe progressing in their careers. And I think that's something about entrepreneurship that we've talked about together of when you decide to be an entrepreneur, you, you can't really compare yourself to your peers who are progressing in their careers because you need to give yourself a little more time in entrepreneurship yeah. to build something. And it's not like you're getting this promotion and then that promotion, but it's more like you're building a company and that takes time and effort. And it's a different kind of trajectory. You kind of look at yourself five-ish years out, not the next year. Yeah. And the bet, like at least for me, the thinking always that helps me takes quote unquote risk because risks are relative. But is the logic that I gave myself was next two years can pan out in one of two ways. Either this is going to be successful. Uh, and in that regard, then I'm able to live life on my terms. And I took a risk and I'm able to embolden myself. So huge upside in terms of my confidence and my learning curve. I'm able to free myself from working for others. Yeah. And this, but if it fails, I was like, okay, if it fails, then I have to go back and join the corporate ladder. 
because they still have to somehow make money and make ends meet and stuff like that. And the bet I was making was, I was like, right now I'm at, when I'm leaving my job, I'm with my peers, I'm doing really well. I'm going to go away for two years. And the two bets I was making was, one, there's a market for failed entrepreneurs. That if I go to a company and say, hey, I did this thing and this is all the things I learned, but I can, I showed all this drive and perseverance to pursue this, that there are people who will shop that, who will buy that skill. And I felt like that's a reasonably good bet. Yeah. And the second was that, let's say I go and join like a consulting company or something and a peer is already two years above my class and they're already ahead of me. And I'm like, a career is a 30-year long race or a 40-year long race, depending on how, how you define it. I said, am I good enough or fast enough to, to make good for two years over a 30-year period? That's basically, if you're running a 15-lap course, it's, hey, can I make do with one lap? Am I good enough for that? And I said, yeah, I think I'm, if I'm not even 2% or like whatever, 2 or by 30, 1 by 15 is a 4%. If I'm not even 4% better than my peers, then I'm just an average. And I think I'm better than that. So I can make that difference up. So I'm like, okay, I can take a two years. I can give a two years head start to others and still beat them. Yeah. So those are the kind of two constructs which, which helped me mm-hmm. be very comfortable with that decision and not doubt that decision. There's also something to the breadth of experience that you get with starting yeah. your own company because it involves so many skill sets. You're problem solving, you're thinking on your feet, you're convincing customers as a salesperson, you're building a product as a product person, you're doing admin and operations. And it's like you wear all these hats that gives you so much more. Yeah. You clean your office, you do the bathroom supplies. You, yeah. You're the janitor. <laughs> yeah. you, you bring the coffee. You're wearing all the hats. And then the other thing I wanted to mention was just that you were having fun. You were having a blast. Whenever you're having a blast, to me, that's not a wasted experience and we with people yeah, you enjoy. It was great. The first year, we uh, we didn't have a place to stay. So we would just bounce around our parents' houses, yeah. sometimes sleep in offices, sleep with friends. But we never felt like it never felt like yeah. we going through this ordeal. Because, yeah, because you know, it was we always had fun. All, we all had great fun. And also, luckily, we had our parents' houses to crash whenever we did. <laughs> to and then a lot of our friends were more than and I realized that most people when you start entrepreneurship especially at a young age a lot of people want to do this and this is a shout out to Martin the gentle nudge where he's trying to get more people through that um shout out uh, to Martin <laughs> most people want to do it so I remember when I said I'm starting out suddenly every friend of mine was so helpful because they're like oh we know how hard this is let's help you in any way, so I know a friend who, who can help you with this. I, oh, you need access to this company. Let me introduce you. People were so generous because they realized that they're living a part of their dream through you in this moment, right? The, nobody enjoys just being stuck. In the corporate ladder. Corporate ladder. For whatever reason, they're not leaving it. But when they can get associated with an entrepreneurship journey, it's meaningful for them. And so help is very forthcoming. And yeah, which was really nice. Yeah. I think there's something too about the hunger of you needing to bounce out like in and out of your parents' houses, not you had only a few thousand dollars saved where you really need to make it work that I think inspire like 
necessity is the mother of invention. It really like inspires this like hunger and creativity and drive. Yeah. Um, that is makes you dangerous as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Okay, so let's fast forward a few years later. I know that you you knew you wanted to move to the set epicenter of tech and Silicon Valley was that for you. And that's why you moved to San Francisco. We met at Stanford. Thank goodness. Amazing. <laughs> and then I know that right after that, you, in 2018, you joined Samsara, which now just IPO'd, I think it was 2021, right? Over $10 billion. So wild experience. I know that you were wow. in the US and Europe. Tell me about that. What were some of the highlights for you? Yeah, I think I got really interested in the hardware space during grad school years. And I was grabbing more and more towards it. And, but obviously didn't have any experience. So I was getting a little more exposure to it from, to talking to some of the people, including Tanuj, who became my co-founder now, because, and we tried to put a small group with him, Stephanie, basically people with hardware experience and try to learn more about industry trends. And we went to VCs, did a few things. It, so I wanted to basically join a startup, which was in the hardware space, but further along than what I'd built. Let's in turn was about 50 odd people or 60 people close to when we sold the company. And I wanted a company which was above a hundred people, but not much above, which was going through the next stage of growth. So I'm like, okay, I want to learn about hardware and I want to learn about next stage of company scaling. And Samsara was luckily fell in that sweet spot. And the good thing was they were small enough that I could interview with some of the co-founding members. Uh, and I styled the founder connect or like the entrepreneurial connect, like the interview was, didn't feel like a business school interview or same stereotypical question. It sounds like I'm talking to builders and people who want to create something and they want to provide the space for others to come and participate in that. So yeah, it ended up being a really good journey. We were from within those two years, I think we went from a couple of hundred people to almost 2000 people really fast. Explosive growth. It, every quarter we were probably growing 50% or more and just, yeah, just, it was a really crazy feeling to feel like what hyper growth really feels like when anything you put out there is just selling like hotcakes and you're just growing and every month you look up, you know, up and you're like, oh, there's a hundred new people in your company. That's how fast you're growing. And then what was grounding was realizing that companies like Uber and Google and Facebook, they grew probably 10x the speed. And I'm like, wow, this feels absolutely <laughs> bad shit, crazy. <laughs> Like you can barely keep up. Two days of the week felt used to feel like, oh, five days of the week because there was so much happening and we were moving so yeah. fast. And every month was different than the previous month and the scale of operations. And then like suddenly in two months, it was like, oh, we're launching Mexico. Four months later, oh, we're launching London. Oh, we're launching also uh, Netherlands. And oh, two months later, it's Belgium, Italy, Switzerland, et cetera. So, yeah. oh, suddenly we need somebody here. We've launched two more product lines in the process. And oh, our revenues wow. have gone from like, tens of million dollars to hundreds of millions of dollars. So like completely different scale of operations and general counsels are being hired. And like now there's a legal team and that which didn't exist. And now accounting, all of that was happening in very real time. And I'm like, wow, how would like companies have grown even faster? The absolute outliers, the hundred billion dollar plus company, like, wow, it must feel 
and it 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 became a place where you know one of our mentors for me and Marchin and uh, I don't know Jennifer we took a class with him Andy. I couldn't get into this class. I'm so disgruntled about this. I was yeah. one of those people who's just waiting outside being like, anyone please drop out or will he let us just listen? But yeah, so, this was a great class. The more wealth in Silicon Valley and in, is created by through joining successful startups than creating one. And then also that fact that you learn a lot about running a good startup by joining a successful one than a failing one. like. And so it, it was a great lesson in hyperscaling and actually what it takes to build a really fast growing Silicon Valley company. It also became a great bet for talent. Like when you're growing that fast, you attract really good talent. So I think talking to another friend of ours, Arthur, when I was still there, he was like, what is the one thing that you're learning? And I said, there's so many things <laughs> I can learning, but the one thing that strikes out is, and it's true, is business and life is about people. And when you're going that fast, that means you're hiring really fast. So you're probably doing five to 10 interviews a week individually. And you multiply that by 50 weeks, you're screening 500 really smart individuals from some of the best colleges with the best experiences. And then you hire 10% of them or lower. And so you get really good at screening for talent. And I think that's even to me, that's one of the best things you can get out yeah. of hyperscaling is be able to screen really good talent and identify it in half an hour, 45 minute interviews better. And it's not like you're infallible, but you get better than yeah. what you were before. And that number of reps just gets you yeah. in the game. Yeah. Would you say, cause I guess my thoughts on that would be, it's a combination of skill set, but also culture fit for you. Was there anything that leaned harder on identifying really good talent over the pattern recognition that Samsara developed? Yeah, culture fit is a component of that. And, but broadly what I realized is, and you, you also get a chance to see that when you bring in those talent, obviously you don't know on the, the false negatives, you don't know the great people that you said no to how they would have done. But the people that you did choose, you, you get to see that, oh, I thought X, Y, Z to be true for this person. And actually when they're in the fire pit, when they're actually in the action zone, how they're performing. And then you get to correlate some of your assumptions to performance and refresh your self, your thinking and you're improve it. Him. The thing that becomes very obvious is for fast growing technology company, we're trying to find people to build and innovate. What I learned is two skills become incredibly important. One is, are they what I call high capacity thinkers? What I mean by high capacity thinkers is in a fast growing environment, you would need to change context every few hours because a lot of things are happening. A lot of new things are happening. Things are changing at a rapid rate. So high capacity individuals are able to take lots of new information and work with it and work with it really fast. And it comes across when people in the speed at which they speak in, in, if you throw them five different topics in an interview, one after the other, which are unrelated, how quickly are they able, is their brain able to switch and talk about it in a meaningful way versus having a very linear line of questioning, which is building off 
one another. And the second is, these are individuals who have demonstrated autonomy in their lives. In, in like they have taken, they can talk about projects, they can talk about life situations, whether it's personal life situations, how they taught themselves something at their home, how they have had a difficult childhood or family where they had to do certain things. But they're able to demonstrate how they're able to take problems and solve because you don't have playbooks written down. You don't have documentation. We want people who can come and be like, oh, here's a problem. I have economy. I can go solve it now. And these two became the, and then finally the drive, right? You cannot yeah. replace people who really have the hunger to want to prove themselves. More than any skill set of, oh, they've already worked at Google or they've already, that didn't matter. Like most of the, unfortunately, the Google employees we interviewed would fail one of these parameters. So they're great for Google, not great for startups. And yeah. Similar to you, I started to get a bit of a, <laughs> <laughs> you're growing so quickly. I was going to ask you, but you answered with hiring being the critical thing of what do you think what made Samsara that effective and what makes a hyper growth company effective with having to pivot and handle so many different operational challenges. Yeah. The, yeah. The other thing I'll highlight apart from hiring, which was really good lesson and Martin and I have spoken a bunch about it is Silicon Valley's hidden secret. Silicon Valley projects itself as a technology epicenter. And that's what I read for coming here. And that's everything that's written about these technology nerd geniuses who come up with a program. And next thing, the program is used by thousands of people. Venture capitalists are pouring hundreds of millions of dollars. And this, this 20 something kid is a billionaire. By the time he's mm -hmm. 30, he's the smartest kid you could have ever met. And those are the stories you're told again and again about technology, technological geniuses and the need to program and the need to code and, and all of that. But you realize that finally scaling is built on sales and Silicon Valley's, I think, hidden secret is how good it is at scaling sales to, yes, using some technology tools, but it's not shy. So if you look at some of the big companies, LinkedIn or whoever, they have massive sales forces, including Google, including Facebook. And these sales, like Sheryl Sandberg, who came from a sales background, yeah. the number two in, in at, or was the number two at Meta. And so we built such a solid sales team and seeing that sales team being built and how fast we scaled that sales team. And most of our competitors were either billion dollar public listed companies, which were slow moving or private equity backed companies. And when you deploy a Silicon Valley sales tactic against that kind of a distribution engine on the competitive side, they have no chance. Like they're playing a different game and you're searching them. Like, in, yeah, it's, it, it was funny. It's like, dude, like, it felt like we have such an unfair advantage. It's like you're going to a race and everybody else can just hop on one leg and you have two legs and a propulsion engine behind you. To go. And you're like, how is this even fair? But I'm going to take, yeah. I'll yeah. take this. You're walking on foot, you're on your jet, bullshit yeah. jet. So I think that was the other thing that learning the sales engine in terms of how to build a great sales team, also the cash dynamics of what that sales engine does to your business model. So really understand. Yeah. So those, mm -hmm. that was the second thing. I think understanding people and then how fast you can actually grow sales 
was the second. I got to ask you, Rish, since this yeah. company IPO'd, how much money did you make? Oh, man, not enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great answer. <laughs> Um, could use some more. <laughs> <laughs> we could always use some more. Uh, no, but I think the interesting thing is when you join these early stage companies or mid stage companies and they end up becoming 10 figure, whatever, 11 figure. Out- yeah, 10 billion. 11, 11 figure outcomes is you have a lot of people who are, who become millionaires or not. I was at the IPO party in December. And I just, and I looked around the room, there were about 50 of us. I'm like, yeah, everybody is probably a millionaire here or more. And the people who have made eight figures and the executives who have made nine figures. And <laughs> it was the happiest room in the world because they worked hard for <laughs> six, seven years and they had a great financial reward for it. And yeah, it's definitely financially lucrative to be part of such companies, but obviously in in you, you, that kind of looking back when a company does well and goes through those liquidity events yeah yeah so was it life-changing for you or oh uh, no not life-changing okay. Um, okay but yeah but hey that's why that's why you're building spot yeah. now yeah. and so now you're building spot ai mm-hmm. i'd love for you to tell us a little bit about it but what i love about this is Rish, in India, you wanted to come to Silicon Valley to build. I know you're now an American citizen, so you're literally living the American dream. Yeah, so it's part we are basically building the video intelligence layer for all the cameras that you see in businesses. If you go to a gas station, if you go to a factory floor, if you go to a grocery store, security cameras all around you in businesses deployed. These security cameras in the past have just been used for one odd incidents and purposes of keeping the bad person out of this. But with today, where the video technology is, where the state of computing with GPUs, et cetera, is, you can do so much more with what you're seeing in the frame. You can, from whether it's simple people counting to just even giving visibility to the right aisles, to the right people so that they can pull up on the phone and see what they're if you are a small business owner with 10 gas stations and you want to know what your gas station in Indiana is doing while you're in Nebraska, you can pull up your phone and see what's happening, which was not possible five or six years ago. These cameras were siloed in. They were recorded in a, a VCR-like device on site. And if you've seen Ocean's Eleven, like there's a big security room. So everybody had a, whether a jazzy security room or a small back-end room with dark, dingy, like this PC kept, and only that PC could access the camera. So just giving... We're building the layer, which basically unlocks the power of sight and power of these cameras for businesses to get visibility into the businesses, to actually get business data insights. And yeah, part of this, the reason why we felt, or I felt, my co-founder, all my co-founders built conviction around this business in different ways, for me, was one of the product lines at Samsara, which kind of gave me the conviction that, okay, video for businesses is going to be massive. And it's a good time to get involved in that space. Yeah. 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 Awesome. And your customers, I know, are across the country. Yeah. So I know you've got SpaceX to customers in the middle of America. What's been the biggest difference you've seen between the two? I think, one, I think 
it's been really, really cool to go to all parts of the country. We have customers in rural parts of Tennessee to Oklahoma to Indiana to towns with just 5,000 people, a small factory which does create this one specific metal part used in some fabrication unit and but yeah. tens of millions of dollars doing that to small businesses which own everything from a grocery store to the local car wash to everything in that in, for that small town and really good businesses. I think there's two things which strike out, which I think Silicon Valley can learn from. One is yeah, because they're very community-minded in their approach in building a business because they're smaller, they're more geographically centered business. Like for a lot of them, the market isn't the globe. The market isn't everyone. The market is a smaller set of industries in and around them or a smaller set of people around them. So they have a sense of community, which I think really is refreshing and really cool to watch. Is that around the community with their customers? Community around the customers, the employees. If you look at most employees in these companies, they stick for 10 years. They're very proud of the people they get to work with. And they've done a really good job of building it with the customers, employees, even the way they contribute to the place around them. Because most of them are from that city and they're not transient people who are just here to, oh, here's a cool company. Yeah. Work here for two years and move out. Yeah. They build their life around that neighborhood, that community. So they contribute a lot back, whether it's sponsoring a small kid's football team or other things in a very meaningful way. So I think that's really refreshing to watch. And I think tech does not do enough of that. It's very inward centric to how they treat the people and from free lunches to remote work and PTOs. The outside community less emphasized. And also only once you get to a certain size, do you start talking about community of your customers, but that's normally just to do big conferences so you can get more money out of it, but not yeah. in just yeah. a purely community-minded way. And the second thing is there, which is becoming the buzzword in VC now, which is operational efficiency. Everybody's talking about how to make tech businesses more efficient. And I think these businesses are forced because they don't have software as a leverage to be run as efficiently as possible. For example, like LinkedIn, as 19,000 employees and about 10, 11 billion dollars in revenue. And I've always understood if you go on LinkedIn, nothing has changed for like years. I don't know what yeah. the 19,000 employees and 5,000 engineers are, are doing. But then you look at a company like United Rentals, which is one of the biggest, if you've seen portable restrooms at any festival or even across mm-hmm. the city, you'll see United Rentals. All across them, they're one of the biggest construction equipment and equipment rental company in the U.S. And they have revenues of about $9 billion, so very comparable with 18,000 employees. So you see this, this drive for efficiency in these businesses, I think, which is really cool to see. Yeah, that's admirable. And they've done it that's without inspiring. a lot of technology. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I was going to say on the tech piece that I feel like for startups, it's harder to create this notion of longevity with your employees because I guess the goal of, of a startup is to exit and give back to your the shareholders or the investors. But I can see where for a larger company like a LinkedIn or, or whatever yeah. other 
larger company, there's totally room for improvement. Okay. So I know that with, with Spot, you guys raised a series A, I believe this was 2021, about 80 million valuation. I know you're about a hundred employees right now. You're growing a ton. Yeah. What are you most excited about? And then what keeps you up at night? What am I most excited about? I think we, this will, there are certain things which look like today, if somebody said, Hey, search, everybody would search on the internet for things is a very obvious thing. But I think in 1999, it might have looked a not so obvious conclusion that how big search is going to be, et cetera, et cetera. It feels like with the use of videos in businesses, we're at that moment where a, a small section of businesses, like from an oral perspective of tens of thousands of businesses or hundreds of thousands of businesses, are starting to you deploy video to, for these beyond just security to more operational use cases, but it's growing at a rapid rate. And by being in the industry, oh, this change is happening at a very fast pace and an accelerating space. And oh my God, in 10 years, people will be like, of course you would want to see things. If you're building a factory, you would want to pull up on your phone and see what's happening. But manufacturing went, line went down because 80% of what we consume is through side. So there's so many reasons from a technology perspective, cultural perspective, timing perspective, where it feels like this change is inevitable and it's happening. And to be in the center of it, I think it is the most exciting thing. And then being able to participate in that so that luckily if we can make a meaningful dent in this change, but this being part of that change is pretty exciting. And then what keeps me up at night, I think it's, we're still a company which is young. We're growing really fast, but there, we, we're still not at a stage where oh, everything is just, you have the next layers of management or set of people where just, everything is just automatic and running and you can just think way into the mm -hmm. future. You're still in, in between land where you have really great people in your team, which can run most of the business, but you still need to step down, help them or give them context. And, and with that, you, you're in this stage where the economic uncertainty with the Ukraine war, with the Chinese real estate market, with what's happening in the U.S. economy inflation, et cetera, puts the economic uncertainty of like how to plan for the next six, nine months in a very difficult spot, then rather than a more steady state where things are like, okay, we can predict what's happening, which means there's a, you have this small startup, which is trying to grow and you're trying to enable your team, but you also have to navigate what's happening in the external environment pretty sharply. I think that's the navigating both the state of the company and the state of the economy at the same time definitely is the problems that, yeah, we're working Adds on. Adds complexity and, to this puzzle because you're navigating yeah. the state of the company, which some things you, you got to just be nimble yeah. and then the economy, which you yeah. really yeah. can't control so much. So I really empathize with that. All yeah. right. Biggest piece of advice that entrepreneurs hear that's actually not true at oh. all. Garbage advice. <laughs> <laughs> biggest piece of garbage advice. I think one is if somebody tells them to go build an Excel business plan for themselves for five years or three years, <laughs> I think it's just stupid. No business has ever stuck to it. It's a futile exercise. Even though some people might 
like the idea of planning. The I think the fundamental principle that I think as an entrepreneur you should know is that, hey, what product am I building? Who am I going to sell to? And is this a big market? And can I keep, will this market pay for it? And if you can answer these questions, you can define these questions in, a, in even just two, three lines each, like you should go. And, and, and that gives me the second advice, which is very often the objective is go talk to 10 customers and they'll tell you what they want and then build it. And it's, it's another, I feel bad advice because when you ask people what they want, it's just wishful thinking. It's not problems. It's like, oh, I want peace or I want happiness. It's like, okay, how much of your time today do you contribute? How much money do you spend on it? It's like, not much. It's like, okay, it's not a market that can be created out of it. So right. you then start thinking about, so my advice always is take your insight of a product and try to find 10 people who will buy it without changing it much. And once you have 10 people who bought it, you would have known how much, which people really bought it very easily, which people didn't buy it easily. And those people who are buying it, why they're really buying it, which allow you to modify your product and then change it and tweak it and make it what the wider set wants. But I think you want customers or people to vote with their time or money for your product. And if they're not, what they're saying doesn't matter. And so right. go and try to sell and not just talk. Yeah. Yeah, I think also a lot of times people don't know what they want necessarily. And you can put that in front of them and it's maybe not practical or useful in the ways that they yeah. hoped it would be. So, like an so totally. Yeah, like an example I'll yeah. give you in our industry that you go and talk customers like, hey, we are a video intelligence company. What do you want from a video intelligence? Oh, I wish AI could tell me exactly when this person walked in and told me when they opened whatever, X, Y, Z. They'll build this AI fantasy land. And I'm like... Uh -huh. Have, what do you use to the videos for? And they're like, oh yeah, in the last six months I've used it for X, Y, and Z. And none of the, what they want and what they're using it for is completely on two different planes. And I'm like, do you have budgets for something like this? Oh no, we don't have budgets for this, but this would be cool. Great. <laughs> so let's talk about what do you have budgets for and what are you actually doing today and how can we solve your problem? And because too many companies then build this and therefore, so many AI companies fail because they're like, oh, this, you built really cool AI. Yeah. You built this candy, super cool technology. But customers are like, yeah, I, this sounded cool, but I don't know how to use it today. So I'm not going to pay for it today. <laughs> um, yeah. 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 Maybe a little bit like the newsletter idea, yeah. either because they had other options or whatnot. <laughs> okay. Rish, this was amazing. I had awesome. such a blast chatting with you. Me but too. before we wrap up, I want to get to know you even better. So I've got some rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Amazing. Okay. What are three crucial routines that you keep? Ooh, three crucial routines that I keep. Okay. Running, cold showers, and I like listening <laughs> to great music while writing. While writing? Yeah, I like writing. Ah, yeah. what type of music do you listen to that helps you write? Mostly electronic deep house. Music. Yeah. Yeah. I hear no there's something bricks. though. Mm, yeah. So it's, because it helps you focus. Yeah. And then cold showers every day. Yeah. <laughs> of course. I'd want to. Of course. All right. Advice that you'd love to give up. TikTok. TikTok. More than so good. <laughs> TikTok. I'm so glad I'm not on it. I feel like oh, I would. Man. I would be in the same boat. Right now, LinkedIn is my social media. 
I go there for five minutes and I don't know how it's like. You got that dopamine I'm still on it. <laughs> I'm like, how am I an adult? I gotta go build my company <laughs> or go for a run or take a yeah. cold shower. All right. Blank is guaranteed to make you happy. Sex cold shower. Or running. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Who's not happy after sex? Uh, it's very true. Bread or pasta? Bread or pasta? Pasta. I know you like food. Okay, pasta. pasta. Uh, I have to agree with you on that. Your proudest professional accomplishment, and I know you've done a lot, so. Jennifer inviting me to on a podcast. Oh, <laughs> oh it's lovely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, this man knows how to be a good friend. <laughs> no, it's uh, cool. This is, yeah, this is the first fun one. Talking about my company on manufacturing products is not as fun. It's been just as fun for me. Yeah. And then you're in your 30s, Rish. I know that we grow and change, but right now, what do you know for sure? Yeah. I think one thing gets certain by every year is choose the people you want to have adventures with and whether it's business, work, life, climbing a mountain, whatever else, running a marathon and just choose the right people to have adventures with. And then the rest, yeah. everything will probably be okay. Yeah. I yeah. don't agree. Yeah. And then what matters most to you and why Rish? You've yeah. never heard this question before. Never. None of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This was a call it essay question for those from the Stanford MBA community. I think it, there's a version of this that I wrote in the essay as well, but I think young people have the most audacious view of the world and themselves and their ability to change it. And I think there's absolute beauty in it. And I think anything you can do to empower it, inspire it, participate in it is what matters most to me. and. It's about living your life in a way that you can inspire 16-year-olds and your own 16-year-old self. And then, and everything that you're able to get from the world, how do you give it back to that generation to be able to build, dream, fly? Yeah. So true. I love it. Love this. Thank you so much, Rish. Yeah. This was awesome. This is great. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks Yay. for watching.